Electric vehicles, Indonesia's Independence Day, and crop shortages. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jafit Kitsan, and today is August 24th, 2023. On today's show... What we're taking from uh, this election is that, obviously, Hun Sen got what he wanted. He engineered the transition, what I keep referring to as the political primogeniture of Cambodia, from one generation to another, from his generation to his son, Hun Manet. So I, I don't think there is much in the way of change coming, even if, you know, perhaps having an English speaking kind of younger, cleaner looking prime minister is just helpful from an image perspective. That was Sopal Ear and Charles Dunst, who chatted with Greg Poling about the implications of the recent elections in Cambodia. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Lauren Mai in the studio. Lauren is our new program coordinator and research assistant here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Hey, Lauren, welcome. Hi, Jaffet. Happy to be here. How was your weekend? Pretty good. It's been a great summer, but I'm really missing Singapore. It's where I grew up. Oh, what do you miss most about it? Definitely the food. I've been craving Hainanese chicken rice for months now, but I guess I'll have to wait until the next time I go back. There's been a rice shortage in Southeast Asia, I heard. Yep. India, the world's largest rice exporter, has curbed exports, raising prices to a level not seen since the 2008 financial crisis. Rice production in Thailand is also predicted to be down roughly 6% this year. The climate crisis isn't just impacting rice, but also other crops like coffee. Climate change and this year's El Nino have severely impacted production. Some places are receiving too much rain, while others are receiving too little. In Indonesia, the world's fourth largest coffee producer, production could be down close to 40%. These changes demonstrate the continued effects of climate change across Southeast Asia. From heavier downpours in Indonesia to droughts in the Mekong Delta, the agricultural landscape of the region will drastically change over the next few years. Continuing on to our next story, Indonesia just celebrated its 78th year of independence on August 17th. Right, and lots of changes are on the horizon. The largest democracy in Southeast Asia, Indonesia will decide its future president just six months from now. Many Indonesians wonder what their future holds, especially as President Joko Widodo steps down after a decade of leading the country. Speaking of President Widodo, on the night before Independence Day, he gave his State of the Nation address. Adorned with traditional clothing from the Tenenbar Islands, he gave an impassioned speech aimed at solidifying his legacy and pushing for a continuation of his economic agenda that he hopes will remain in place well after he leaves. He declared that Indonesia would become a developed and economically powerful country by 2045, the 100-year anniversary of Indonesia's Declaration of Independence from the Dutch. With an approval rating at 80% and a modest GDP growth projection at 5.2%, he is well on his way to maintaining a positive legacy for years to come. Whoever the next president will be has big shoes to fill. While presidential candidates are not formally announced until November 25th, Prabowo Subianto, Ganjar Pranowo, and Anies Baswedan are the current leading figures in the race. Since President Widodo hasn't endorsed any of these candidates yet, the future of Indonesia remains up in the air. Yes. Only time will tell exactly who will lead Indonesia, but more importantly, how they will lead Indonesia. One of the key items on the Indonesian foreign policy agenda has been its involvement in the clean energy transition in Asia and across the globe. It is home to the largest reserves of nickel in the world, which makes it a crucial part of the electric vehicle supply chain. This could be a boon for investment, but that same nickel demand leaves Indonesia wedged in a tight spot between China and the U.S. President Widodo dreams of making Indonesia a powerhouse for EV production. In his recent visit to China earlier this summer, he emphasized his interest in bringing in Chinese EV companies. Indonesia is also in talks with major U.S. EV companies like Tesla, leveraging its hold on the nickel market to spur investment. 
Beyond Cars, domestic production of electric motorcycles is on the upswing. With over 200 million registered motorcycles throughout Southeast Asia, with the actual figure likely much higher, electric motorcycles have the potential to get a lot of traction. Indonesia might have been getting the most attention in the realm of EVs because of the nickel, but let's not forget other Southeast Asian countries' involvement in the EV landscape as well. You're right. Yeah, Chinese EV companies have also been spending a lot in Thailand, committing to invest 1.44 billion USD into production facilities. In July, Tesla started operations in Malaysia. Meanwhile, Vietnam's EV maker VinFast is preparing for an EV plant in North Carolina. The growing demand for nickel is set against the backdrop of a complicated, dynamic set of circumstances. We're talking about climate change mitigation, U.S.-China competition, and also inter-ASEAN competition to attract the most investment. Well, those are the... Wait, what about the Malaysian state elections? Oh right, how could I forget? As we all know, the Malaysian state elections took place a few weeks ago. While there was no major change to the status quo, with the coalition government holding three states and the opposition party holding three states, the Malaysian Islamic Party, or PAS, still made some gains. It seems like Anwar's not quite out of the woods yet, but we'll be dedicating our next episode to dissecting the results, so we're just going to leave it here for now. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Lauren, for stopping by. Up next, Greg's interview with Sophal Ear and Charles Dunst, so stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio listeners. Last week, Alina Noor steered the ship by herself. This time it's my turn. Alina is traveling in the region and getting a well-deserved break. Today, we are going to talk about Cambodia. Cambodia's recent election and nominal transition of power to Humanet. And to do it, we brought back two former guests. We have Sopal Ear and Charles Dunst. Sopal is associate professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management at Arizona State University. Charles is a senior associate at the Asia Group, and most importantly, a non-resident with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS. Sopal, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Charles, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. So you both know far better than I do what's going on in Phnom Penh. So let me just lay out the Reader's Digest version of recent events, and then you tell me what it actually means or where we should go. So this year, Cambodia had its election, July 23rd. The Cambodia People's Party of long-serving Prime Minister Hun Sen ran effectively unopposed, having engineered the disqualification of the Candlelight Party, which was the only real opposition, a successor of sorts to the old Cambodia National Rescue Party, itself a successor to the old Human Rights Party and the Sam Rainsy Party. I suppose knowing that 100% looks suspicious, the CPP, I think, said that they won 80-something percent of the vote. You can you can correct me, but now has 120 out of 125 seats in, in the parliament. I think the rest went to the old Funsenpec Royalist Party. And then we had a handful, something like 5% of ballots that were invalid or, or spoiled, etc. So this preordained CPP mandate comes in, and then not long afterwards, we have the formal handover of prime ministerial responsibilities from Hun Sen to his eldest son, Hun Manet. This had been telegraphed for months. Charles, you've written about this for quite some time, going back to, I think, early last year, about that this transition might happen sooner than we expect. But of course, Hun Sen keeps hold of a whole lot of other powers. So, Assuming that all of that is more or less correct, why don't I maybe start with, with Sopal, because uh, Charles gets to write with some frequency for CSS. Sopal, 
what's the big takeaway here? What do we take out of this election? And more importantly, I guess, who Manette's now ascension to power as a princeling? What we're taking from uh, this election is that obviously Hun Sen got what he wanted. He engineered the transition, what I keep referring to as the political primogeniture of Cambodia, from one generation to another, from his generation to his son, Hun Manet, and in relatively powerful ministries like defense, interior, and elsewhere, where the fathers have handed off to their son. In the case of the uh, National Bank of Cambodia, the Central Bank of Cambodia, the father to the daughter. And that is supposed to be a kind of deal that he made with the parents to kind of keep them at bay, to keep them satisfied. Uh, you're not losing power. My son is going to become prime minister, but your son, and in one case, your daughter, will take your position and you can continue this fiefdom system we have in Cambodia where each family controls their company ministry situation and profits from that uh, continued rule. It also means that Cambodia is increasingly further away from the last experience it might have had with an actual semblance of democracy. 2018, as we all know, resulted in, in the complete victory of the CPP in that they took all the seats. This time, five seats were spared for Funsen Peck, which essentially is a kind of vassal party of the CPP. I mean, they're not, they're not really going to put up any opposition. They've agreed to work with, within the system. That's what we take away. Now, Manet, uh, we keep being asked, uh, you know, is he going to be different? Is he going to lead Cambodia towards the West? That I'm certain of is not going to happen anytime soon. There is, there are already indications that he has uh, told China that everything will continue. There's not going to be any shift. And so uh, don't hold your breath on any dramatic changes. Now, will he come to Unga in September? Of course, he's all set up to make that big speech, probably in excellent English. And that's because he's West Point educated NYU Master of Arts in Economics and PhD in Economics from Bristol University. So he's capable, quite capable in that, in that sense. And he will be meeting with CEOs of American corporations to uh, give them a new appreciation of Cambodia from his perspective. But uh, will things actually change within Cambodia? Not really. And as you intimated, Greg, uh, Hun Sen has already said that actually if his son, if Hun Manet were to be killed somehow, he would resume the prime ministership. So he would, he would take back the prime ministership. And so he's signaling basically, you try anything on, on the prime minister, I'll take it back. And he, of course, he remains, he will become when the commune elections take place later in 2024, the president of the Senate. He has already been uh, given the position of president of the King's Privy Council. And of course, he remains the head of the Cambodian People's Party, which then decides whether Hun Manet can continue being a, a member of the CPP. And if he's not a member of the CPP, he would lose his seat in the National Assembly and he would lose the prime ministership. So it's like uh, he's co-pilot with his son and he owns the DMV. <laughs> Charles, Sopal pointed out that uh, Hun Manet will presumably speak at the UN uh, General Assembly in, in uh, September in New York. That'll be his first kind of coming out here in, in the U.S. as prime minister. He'd already, you wrote about this for us a while ago, had already kind of been stepping out more in this kind of military diplomacy role in his, his former uh, role as head of the army, meeting with dignitaries, particularly from the West. What do you think that the reaction has been like so far from Europe and the U.S. to engaging with this new 
PM, but not really new power structure. Sure. I mean, it was the Australian military commander, the army commander, and the New Zealand army commander who met with Manette, I think a year, year and a half ago. And then the Japanese and Koreans have kind of met him pretty frequently. I mean, he went to Japan and met with former Prime Minister Abe, met with current Foreign Minister Hayashi. And it was a pretty intentional, I think, focus from Japan of saying, well, let's deepen ties with the guy who's about to run Cambodia. And let's not worry so much about human rights and governance. And in comparison to the West, where Manette has met some lower level U.S. officials, but certainly nobody at the level of Australia or New Zealand. And I think how was he going to be received in the U.S. is is a little bit of an open question. I think much of the frustration with Cambodia's governance and human rights and just kind of Cambodia's government generally, much U.S. frustration, I I do think revolves around Hun Sen, where you have so many people who have seen him for almost 40 years and really have this visceral disdain for him, for him having ruined their democracy project in the 90s and continue to crack down since. So I think there is an opportunity for Manette to show up in New York, speak in this flawless English, and perhaps win some support for maybe a younger generation of folks who maybe don't really know about the Cambodia of the 90s or really of the last 10 years, particularly from from business, I think. But as long as the U.S.-Cambodia relationship remains rocky, I'd be surprised if, if business ramped up substantially or if the EU would move to deepen ties with Cambodia in a, in a serious way. I think there's an understanding that even though Manette might be the prime minister as in in a few days, that obviously Hun Sen remains in power and it remains a corrupt system. It remains poorly governed. It's a hard place to do business, I mean, for for basically anybody. And it's a hard place for, I think, U.S. government, U.S. policymakers to deal with. I mean, you think about the fact that when Manette comes to power, he will do, he will have done so in a fundamentally undemocratic way. That will make it very difficult for any policymaker in the White House or the State Department to say, well, let's do a rethink of Cambodia policy because there's a new person. There's a new person, but the new person came there in a completely undemocratic way, and the old person, who they don't like, is still there. So I, I don't think there is much in the way of change coming, even if, you know, perhaps having an English-speaking, kind of younger, cleaner-looking prime minister is just helpful from an image perspective. Manette now becomes the face of Cambodia abroad. Final question for me, so Paul, given all of the prerogatives that his father continues to hold, has anything really changed in Phnom Penh? Is Hun Manette really in charge at the end of the day, or or is this like all those scenes in, in the old Braveheart movie where like Robert the Bruce has to go upstairs and ask his dad for permission before he, he issues any directives? Oh, I think it's it's more like the, the Braveheart scene you described, uh, Greg. I mean, if if anything, it's a mind meld. I've described how hearing speeches of Manet, I thought it was his father speaking. He has intoned this nasal voice that uh, uh, tries to replicate the dad. He uh, has adopted the mannerism. Uh, of course, he's not as smooth. He's not an, as natural. He's not as charismatic in, in front of large audiences. But he's trying and he's, he clearly understands that his father is the example to the model to replicate. And that is, uh, you know, that will go down fundamentally into the policy level as well. When he, I'm sure we'll talk about win-win policy, about, about peace, about development. These things are associated with the regime, with his father, with himself now. And it will continue onwards as such, because that's the thing that they're banking on. Now, of course, is it the reality on the ground? Exports have come down 20% from a year ago. There's talk of how everything that glitters in Cambodia is, in fact, on credit. 
and China's lack of economic growth relative to the past will probably hit Cambodia very hard. It's just that they're still hoping that the crumbs from the Chinese regime uh, falls on Cambodia's table, right? I mean, like, it's going to be, they rely on China so much, it's going to be incredibly important for that relationship to continue. You're right, Greg, the son is going to follow what the father says. I don't think there's going to be any daylight between them. And if there is, it will be prearranged and pre-agreed upon. Charles, you're the guy who wrote a book on democracy, and you've pointed out in some previous writings here how unusual this succession plan is, not because the father passed power to his son, that happens all the time in autocracies, but because a whole gang, right, the entire network of the CPP power structure managed to negotiate a transition of power to their children in an almost feudal system. This this is not that unusual historically, but it's pretty unusual in the 21st century. Do we have any parallels here and to, to tell us if this is sustainable or eventually do like now the second generation of CPP leadership, the knives eventually come out as they fight for power? I mean, I don't have any historical, I mean, any recent examples off the top of my head, but I guess the question that I continue to have is how feasible is this once Hun Sen is gone? Because it's pretty obvious to me, and I think to most observers, that as of right now, the the control of the CPP's endemic rivalries is being managed by Hun Sen. I mean, this whole elevation of the younger generation was managed by the Hun family, but really by Hun Sen. And this whole system still revolves around him. And I do wonder what happens when you remove the guy who's kind of responsible for the patronage system that maintains this, this system, the broader political system. You remove the patronage, you remove the guy who's kind of in charge of a little bit of the fear mechanism that keeps it all together, what happens? Because I don't think Hun Manette has proven that he can manage these rivalries as of, as of yet. So it seems to me like this is something that it looks reasonably stable for the next few years because Hun Sen's only 70 or 71. I mean, he's not... He doesn't, he looks pretty healthy. He doesn't seem like he's going anywhere anytime soon. But eventually when you remove him from the scene, it's not entirely clear to me how Hun Manette will be able to manage these rivalries, particularly among families that have long wanted the premiership for themselves, whether that's at Hun Sen's generation or the generation below who basically argue, well, why should you get it? You're the, you're the pampered child. You were sent abroad. And there's this older generation saying, well, we're the, the war-weary folks who were here to actually build Cambodia back, we should be the ones in power. Or by transition, my my children should be the ones in power. So I, I think this elevation looks fine for the next for the next few years, but I do think the all bets are a little bit off once Hun Sen is, is out of the picture. It also, I imagine, eliminates a lot of the flexibility that most autocrats have to play members of the patron network off against each other, because if if all major positions are now inherited, then unless your dad was the foreign minister, you never get to be the foreign minister. If your dad was the minister of transport, guess what? That's the best you're going to do. And so there's, you know, it limits, I, I suppose, the number of safety valves and the ability to use inter-elite rivalry the way that effective autocrats so often do. Do we have any sense of how the average citizen looks at this now, I mean, this elevation of an entire generation of princelings to power must lack some of the legitimacy of the old war era generation who maybe got a pass, as Charles indicated, because they got to sell this narrative that they had pulled the country back together. 
Right. Yeah. And Greg, I, I think that for the average Cambodian, there's a sense of resignation. If you work hard and study and uh, are capable, will you be able to become a minister someday in the government? doesn't seem like it. In fact, I would say the only member of the government that comes completely from outside a princeling background is the finance, uh, economy and finance minister, Anpon Moniroth. I mean, I knew him when I was an, an intern at the Cambodian Institute for Cooperation and Peace, where he was a, a fellow at the time. And, and I, I know uh, that his background is not from one of privilege, but he worked his way, was an advisor to the prime minister, eventually trusted to the point where where he and his buddy Visat, who is also now elevated to a uh, ministerial role, uh, are, you know, the only two that I can think of that are truly from outside. The irony, of course, is Visat was actually hired, I think, under a Sam Rangzi campaign as, as finance minister at the time where he was recruiting for auditors. And Visat, I think, was one of those people that applied for it and tested and, and became an auditor in the, in the then new ministry of finance in the early to mid nineties. And, and of course, you know, he's risen in power, but, but for everybody else, for the average Cambodian, I, I, I think it, it just sends the wrong message. It says, unless by birth you were born into the family that now controls or has power or marry into it and become trusted, then you are out of luck. You will never, ever, ever have the opportunity to be in a position of influence in Cambodia. I think that's terrible, right? I mean, of course, nobody hires for necessarily only merit and competence. Politicians are, are brought together by loyalty, but at some level, you know, there has to be some competence, but it just sends, sends a dispiriting message, I think, to, to all Cambodians who aren't from that pedigree. We've talked a lot about the CPP. Let's talk about the other side, such as it still exists. The opposition in exile, the opposition domestically. Is there opposition left domestically? And what's the reaction been like? Charles, maybe I'll start with you because so much of the opposition is abroad um, and particularly here in D.C., yeah, I mean, I think the loudest voices of the opposition are certainly abroad at this point. And I think it, it, they've played, I mean, we've talked about this before, but they've played a huge role in, I think, shaping U.S. policy towards Cambodia, where the only time a senator or a congressperson hears about Cambodia tends to be from the exiled opposition. And when you think about the opposition that's left in the country, I think it's, it's like impossible to quantify because you have no idea if there were free and fair elections or even free-ish elections in the, in the, uh, the candlelight party was allowed to participate. You do wonder what percentage of the vote they would get. I mean, I don't, I don't think they're winning 80% or even 50%, but certainly would be above the, you know, the nine or 10% they might be allowed in more restricted conditions. But I think what's indicative to me of, as Sopal was saying, the kind of resignation, the frustration with this really sclerotic political system is the fact that in the last election, there were about half million votes that were spoiled. And that's about 6% of the overall total. And this was despite Hun Sen threatening repeatedly, you have to vote and you can't spoil your ballots because he wants a high turnout number because a high turnout number makes it look like you have an effective democracy even when you don't. And that helps your image in maybe rural Cambodia where democracy is not, not so well understood. But the fact that, you know, half a million Cambodians were still willing to go out there and spoil their votes, I do think is indicative to me of some frustration, as is the fact that turnout 
was only around 84%, which is higher than the last election, which was one of, I think, the lowest on record. It was in like the high 70s. That's 84%, you know, despite threats that it should have been higher. Uh, You know, you're not getting the 98, 99% that you get in a previous Soviet era of a Temkin election or something. So you have 16% of the public not voting and then another 6% spoiling their ballots despite threats against that. And that's, you know, that's 20% of the population that is clearly frustrated. And I think something we don't talk about enough is just given how young Cambodia is and how much the ruling regime, the CPP's message revolves around, we delivered Cambodia from war, we provide stability. That message is not so attractive to people under 35 who have no memory of war and who have no real memory of instability and who are wondering, well, why is Cambodia not as rich and developed as Vietnam, let alone Thailand? Why are all these major companies moving production of goods out of China into Vietnam and Cambodia gets nothing and we're stuck with garment manufacturing and not high quality goods. So I do think there is real frustration in in Cambodia. Do I think it's particularly organized? No. And that's because the CPP has managed to crack down on it pretty, pretty aggressively in the last few years. But I do think there is simmering discontent still. On the point about spoiled ballots. So there was some good natured debate, let's say on the Twitterverse among the Cambodian expat community about how much and whether this mattered at all, comparing it to the number of invalid ballots in the last go round. So, Paul, where do you fall on this? Do we have reason to believe that some significant number of of the invalid ballots were intentionally spoiled despite the explicit warnings from Hun Sen that people would be arrested for doing so? Well, Greg, when you see a big X on a ballot, and this is right around the time uh, Elon changes Twitter's name to X, right? It's not about supporting the new brand. It's about <laughs> saying, I reject this election. I reject the choices in front of me. And I want nothing to do with this, except I've been forced to go into this polling booth to play act, to virtue signal that I'm participating in the system. So when you see smiling faces with inked fingers as evidence of having voted, it does not mean that they went and voted for the CPP. It might have meant that they went and voted by putting a big X across the entire ballot. So yeah, no, I I think it's very valid to say that if you get half a million spoiled ballots, these are not the hanging chads of Florida. This is, this is definitely a situation where somebody intentionally is saying, I do not want any of these choices. I think it's a false exercise and we're being forced into it. So they're probably rejecting the fact that Kem Sokai is, is sentenced to 27 years in prison. As for the existence of opposition, it'll always be there. It's just because one has, you know, 84% participation and 120 seats going to the, out of 125 going to the CPP, you know, it does not mean that the opposition has evaporated and everyone is in agreement that the CPP should be in charge. It just means that of the choices given, the false choices given, that's, that's not the only thing people can do. But, uh, the, you know, the moment that they are given a choice, they would not follow what it has been offered them. And, and the fact that, you know, you've got a Cambodian-American Terry Sang in a prison in, in, in Afin Preve here is really telling you that they are so afraid in, uh, in Phnom Penh of allowing any kind of even theatrical performance as she did with, uh, you know, wearing a Statue of Liberty outfit and, and denouncing the regime, that that would threaten them to the point of, You've got it. You've got five years prison sentence. You know, the fact that she's not yet been declared a what is it unlawfully detained or whatnot is a disgrace in my view. 
Well, hard to find silver lining in either the July elections or Hunmanet's, you know, nominal elevation to power. But I, I think what I hear from both of you, what I what I hope you would agree with, is that societal dynamics in Cambodia are not static. That the opposition or or discontent has not disappeared. And that whatever Hun Sen might think, he won't live forever. And this elevation of an entire cadre of leaders to power is perhaps not as sustainable over the long term as as he might think. But we also should all be realistic. Cambodia is not going to change tomorrow or next year. And Hun Sen is relatively young still, by particularly for a minister-mentor role. I think we're going to have to leave it here. I note that we had both a Mel Gibson Braveheart and a Hanging Chad reference, so some of our younger listeners have some Googling to do. But with that, so Paul, Charles, thank you both so much for joining me, and thank all of you for listening again. We will talk to you again on the next Southeast Asia Radio in a couple of weeks. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Yumei Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And I'm Lauren Mai. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.